It's February, 2018. In California, Dwayne Keith Davis, better known as Keith D, sits in front of a camera crew. He's dressed smartly, wearing a sharp blue suit and tie with a neatly trimmed beard. Despite the terminal illness he's living with, his presence is powerful and his broad shoulders fill up the entire screen. Keith D has agreed to speak to a film crew for a documentary titled Death Row Chronicles. It's a miniseries exploring the controversial rise of Death Row Records, one of hip hop's most infamous labels. Filmmakers hope that Keith D will spill exclusive details on a tragedy that shocked the music world, an event which he claims to have been part of that thrust California into days of uncontrollable violence and stained hip hop forever. The murder of Tupac Shakur. In 1996, 25-year-old Tupac was at the height of his fame, widely considered to be the most influential hip-hop artist in the world. But all that ended one September night when he was killed in a drive-by shooting on the streets of Las Vegas. His sudden death ripped a hole in rap music and plunged California into mourning. Fans across the world wanted to know who was responsible for his death. Tupac's unsolved murder remains one of hip-hop's most intriguing secrets. But now, 22 years after the incident, Keith D insists he's the only living person who knows the truth. He claims to have been in the car with the mystery man that pulled the trigger. He's perhaps kept his knowledge a secret in order to protect friends, relatives, or maybe even himself. But now aged 58 and dying of cancer, Keith D knows it's finally time to tell the truth. His terminal illness guarantees him immunity from prosecution. So with the cameras rolling, he dives into the details of Tupac's murder. In his low growling voice, Keith D sets the scene of a vibrant Las Vegas Saturday night. Flashy cars, police sirens, loud music blaring from stereos. He recalls piling into a white Cadillac with three other members of the Southside Crips gang. They were on the prowl to find Tupac Shakur. Tupac was associated with their rivals, the Bloods, and had been involved in gang violence that very same night. The Crips set out on a mission to kill him. But as Keith D's detailing the events of the night, the interviewer sharply interrupts his story. He cuts across his dialogue with a blunt and revealing question. One which the whole world has been waiting to find out. Who shot Tupac Shakur? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Keith D, the man who witnessed Tupac Shakur's murder. It's about the gangs and violence that consumed the world of hip-hop during the 1990s and the infamous drive-by shooting of 25-year-old Tupac Shakur. It's about the mysteries and controversies surrounding the celebrity's unsolved murder. 
and the deathbed confession from a man who claims to have seen it all. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. It's 1994, and in America, the hip-hop scene is exploding. Rap music plays in clubs, on radio stations, stereos, and the streets. It draws attention to a new side of society. Among the exciting, bold young artists is 25-year-old Tupac Shakur. He's a rapper from one of East Harlem's poorest neighborhoods, someone who's unafraid to sing about traditionally taboo topics, Alcoholism, poverty, drugs, racism, and police brutality. Despite his youth, he's already earned worldwide fame and is considered to be one of the leading rap artists in the entire hip-hop genre. Tupac has many influential, powerful friends, including another young rapper called Christopher Wallace, better known as the Notorious B.I.G. or Biggie. But the friendship between these two artists is short-lived, and by November of 1994, all love is lost. It's November 30th, and Tupac and Biggie have agreed to meet each other at a Times Square recording studio. They're organizing a collaboration with another hip-hop artist. However, when Tupac arrives at the planned meeting point in New York, Biggie isn't waiting for him. Instead, a violent mob blindsides Tupac in the lobby and ruthlessly guns him down where he stands pelting his body with bullets and ripping the expensive jewelry from his neck and wrists. The young rapper is rushed to a nearby hospital and treated for five gunshot wounds. His injuries are life-threatening. Fortunately, doctors work quickly and are able to nurse Tupac back to health. He gradually recovers, but the same cannot be said for his friendship with Biggie. Tupac can't help but notice the strange coincidence that Biggie didn't show up to the recording studio on the day he was shot. Some reports even suggest Biggie was already safely inside the building while Tupac was gunned down. 
Is there a chance that Biggie knew about the attack and deliberately stayed away? Could he have even planned it? Although there's no evidence proving Biggie had a hand in the assault, Tupac can't help but think otherwise. His trust in Biggie is shattered and the former friends become bitter enemies. Their feud is soon public knowledge as they fill their songs with confrontational lyrics about each other and name tracks in direct reference to their rivalry. Everyone knows that Biggie and Tupac are at war. However, in the months to come, this rivalry will be the least of Tupac's problems. It's now February 1995. Three months have passed since the attack on Tupac Shakur in New York. But although he's physically recovered, his reputation is suffering. You see, Tupac is currently serving a four-and-a-half-year prison sentence for sexually abusing a 19-year-old girl. This latest incarceration adds to an already hefty tally of jail time and arrests. In 1992, he was involved in a shooting that killed a six-year-old boy. A year later, he was arrested in Michigan for attacking a local rapper with a baseball bat. And then, in LA, he faced another sentence for assaulting a film director. This pattern of arrests is becoming normal for Tupac, but it's a lifestyle that will soon catch up with him. With a number of powerful friends as well as dangerous enemies all over the country, jail might just be the safest place for the young celebrity. In Compton, California, a storm is brewing in the hip-hop world. Death Row Records, a new production label, is attracting attention. Popular artists such as Dr. Dre, the DOC, and Snoop Dogg have all recently signed to the company. It looks like the home and future of hip-hop. But the rise of Death Row Records also shines a spotlight on its controversial owner, Marion Suge Knight. Suge is a former football player turned gangster. He's renowned for threatening and bullying others to get his own way. There are rumors that he once forced a rapper to give him songwriting credits by dangling him off the edge of a building. Although the rumor may be unfounded, it helps create Suge's violent, fearsome image. Suge has been arrested on multiple occasions for assault, battery, robbery, and violence. His lifestyle is so dangerous that he surrounds himself with his own personal bodyguards. They are dressed in expensive silk suits and wear golden chains engraved with a Death Row Records emblem, a hooded figure strapped to the electric chair. But Suge isn't feared simply for his crime and violence. He and his bodyguards are also associated with the Bloods street gang. Originating in California, the Bloods are a notorious street gang, recognized primarily for their ongoing war with the Crips. Members of the opposing groups are sworn to be lifelong enemies, and deadly fights break out almost daily between the Bloods and the Crips. It's dangerous to belong to either gang. As a successful music producer, Suge Knight is of course familiar with a celebrated Tupac Shakur, and it doesn't take him long to set his sights on signing the artist. He knows that Tupac is hip-hop royalty, and getting him to work with Death Row Records would add to his collection of star-studded celebrities. The only problem is, Tupac Shakur is currently jailed in New York, 
where he's still got at least another three years left of his sentence. But this isn't too much of a problem for Suge, whose money gives him some leverage with the law. In October 1995, he travels to the Clinton Correctional Facility where Tupac is being held and strikes a deal. Shook promises the rapper that he can get him out of prison that very same month on the condition that he signs to work with Death Row Records. Perhaps truly believing in the power of Shug's label or maybe just desperate to get out of jail, Tupac agrees to the offer. Shug pays the $1.4 million bond for his release and Death Row Records gains one of the biggest names in hip-hop. However, life outside of prison does not last long for Tupac Shakur. As he enters Death Row Records' studio to create his fourth album, he has no idea that it will be his last. It's September 7th, 1996, Saturday night. An excited crowd swarms the MGM Grand Hotel in Las Vegas. Thousands of people parade through the foyer waving their tickets, buying snacks, spilling drinks, and placing bets. Tonight is the championship match between heavyweight boxers Mike Tyson and Bruce Seldon. Anyone who's anyone is here. Hollywood royalty, Wall Street titans, and business billionaires. Even wealthy drug dealers and gang leaders from the streets take their places around the ring. In the front row, just centimeters away from the action, sit Suge Knight and Tupac Shakur. As usual, Tupac is surrounded by a throng of energetic fans who demand autographs and pictures of their favorite celebrity. A roar erupts from the arena as Mike Tyson struts out, walking in time to one of Tupac's own records as it blasts through the speakers. The championship fight lasts no more than two minutes. Mike Tyson flattens his opponent before many of the spectators have even taken their seats. However, unbeknown to anyone at the match, a second fight is waiting just around the corner, and its consequences will be devastating to the future of hip-hop. After congratulating the victorious Mike Tyson, Tupac Shakur and Suge Knight swagger into the foyer of the MGM Grand. They're flanked as usual by silk-suited bodyguards on either side. As they make their way to the exit, a young man catches their attention. He's slouching against the elevators, as if waiting for someone. This man is no stranger to Tupac, Suge, or the death row bodyguards. He's 21-year-old Orlando Baby Lane Anderson, a prominent member of the Southside Crips and someone high on the blood's list of enemies due to recent events. Just weeks ago, Anderson was involved in a violent attack on one of Suge's bodyguards. The victim was badly beaten, and his death row pendant stolen from around his neck. Ever since the incident, the Bloods have been desperate to get their hands on Anderson and his fellow Crips. So when they see him standing alone, unprotected, they cannot believe their luck. Tupac calls to Anderson. You from the South? But he barely gives him a chance to answer, and within seconds, Tupac has punched Anderson and knocked him to the ground with a single blow. Chaos follows. The death row bodyguards pile onto Anderson and pummel him with punches and kicks. Even Suge Knight deals a few blows. The crowd from the boxing match stare in shock horror as grown men roll around the floor in a bloody, 
messy brawl. Eventually, the hotel security guards break up the fight and send Tupac and his bodyguards on their way. They are relatively unharmed and are satisfied that justice has been served. So they leave the hotel without causing further trouble. Tupac and Suge have a big night ahead of them. They're hosting a party at a newly opened hip hop venue in town, the 662 Club. It's owned by Suge and is planned to showcase the fresh, exciting talents of Death Row Records. However, little do they know that the brawl in the foyer will not be the last they see of Anderson that night. As he stumbles back onto his feet and limps painfully from the hotel, the young Crip swears revenge on the Bloods. Behind every missing person is a story to be told. Look closely at the details and you may just find the answers. Find the answers, find the truth. I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases, tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. From the tragedies of Amelia Earhart and Charles Lindbergh Jr. to the mysterious circumstances surrounding Tierra Williams and the Iguala mass kidnapping, each week on Disappearances, we're spotlighting the stories you thought you knew and the ones you'll be shocked to discover. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The truth is out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Minutes have passed since the attack at the MGM Grand. Anderson has made his way to the Treasure Island Hotel the Crips' unofficial Las Vegas headquarters. As soon as he arrives, nervous excitement fills the air. The members of the Crips who traveled to Vegas for the Tyson-Selden boxing match are all crammed into one room. They're fuming with anger at the Bloods and can already taste sweet revenge. There's no question about it in their minds. Tupac Shakur is going to die. But who will pull the trigger? Accounts vary on what exactly happens next. In a heavily disputed report written by Chuck Phillips for the LA Times, he states that the Crips reach out to Tupac's rival, Biggie. The Crips suspect that Biggie will pay a large sum for the death of his nemesis and aren't about to miss the chance of earning a small fortune. Although not a prominent member of either gang, it's believed that Biggie sympathizes with the Crips. In his account, Phillips speculates that Biggie jumps at their offer and promises to pay the Crips a total of $1 million for the death of Tupac. He also allegedly hands them his own gun, a 40 caliber Glock pistol. He wants this to be the murder weapon. However, Chuck Phillips' account will later be fiercely contested by several witnesses, investigators, and detectives. 
they all insist that the Crips choose to attack Tupac on their own. It's their personal war and they don't need any encouragement to carry out the hit. Some records show that Biggie isn't even in Vegas at the time, so he couldn't have had anything to do with the events that follow. Either way, with or without Biggie's blessing, the Crips settle on a plan of action. A group of them pile into a white Cadillac with their guns locked and loaded. Behind them, a second car follows with more vengeful Crips. It's now 11 p.m. and Shug and Tupac drive through the vibrant streets of Las Vegas. They're heading for the 662 Club in their flashy BMW. The music is blaring loudly and Tupac leans out of the windows, blowing kisses to adoring fans and waving as though part of a parade. There are no bodyguards with them in the car this time. Instead, they're followed closely by a convoy of Death Row Records vehicles. Just after 11 p.m., police stop Tupac's car and ask him to step out. There's a problem with the license plates, and the music's being played too loudly. But this holdup is just momentary. Tupac charms himself out of a ticket, and within minutes, he and Suge are back on the road again. At around 11.15 p.m., the BMW comes to a stop at a junction between Flamingo Road and Koval Lane. While they're held at a set of red traffic lights, Tupac flirts with a group of girls in a nearby car. He never even notices the white Cadillac pulling up next to him. Suddenly, echoes of gunshots fill the night air. Bullets explode from a handgun and tear into the BMW. Tupac desperately tries to clamber over onto the back seats, searching for any way to escape the spray of bullets but Suge pulls him down fiercely, perhaps thinking there's more protection in the front. But it's too late. Four bullets have already made their way into Tupac's body. As he bleeds uncontrollably, the white Cadillac speeds off into the electric Las Vegas night. It will never be seen again. When police arrive at the scene, Tupac is still alive, but he needs immediate medical attention he's quickly sent away in an ambulance. Meanwhile, Shogun and his crew are kept behind. Police order everyone out of the BMWs and meticulously search each passenger. They're convinced that the shooter came from one of the cars and they treat everyone as a suspect. Even Shug, who repeatedly complains of a graze to his head, undergoes an inspection. Eventually, the officers realize that no one from Death Row Records shot Shug and Tupac, it was clearly a drive-by attack. But by now, they've wasted so much time that they have no hope of catching the real killers. Meanwhile, at the Las Vegas University Medical Center, doctors and nurses urgently attend to Tupac Shakur. Tupac is in a critical condition. He's bleeding profusely from four gunshot wounds and hasn't regained consciousness since the shooting. Over the next few days, Tupac is treated round the clock. Doctors try everything they can think of to stop the life-threatening bleeding. Even removing his right lung in an attempt to prevent further internal damage. But the wounds are too deep and no amount of medicine or treatment can stop Tupac's body from hemorrhaging. Eventually, on Friday the 13th of September, 
just six days after the drive-by shooting, Tupac Shakur dies. The sudden death of hip-hop's beloved young star shocks the world as fans learn of the tragedy. After the news of Tupac's death spreads, war breaks out between the Bloods and the Crips. The Bloods are certain that the Crips killed Tupac and will not rest until they get revenge. As a result, Compton becomes consumed in gang violence. The impoverished Los Angeles neighborhood is already renowned for its high crime rate and the frequent fights between the Bloods and the Crips. It's also widely recognized as the home of rap culture. Compton exploded onto the world stage in 1988 when N.W.A. released their hit single, Straight Outta Compton. So when Tupac Shakur is killed, Compton is plunged into guerrilla warfare. For two whole days in September, shootings devastate the city. 13 gang members are seriously injured, three are killed, and several innocent passersby are caught up in the crossfire. No one can see an end to the violence. During this time, police attention is split between trying to control the fighting and investigating the murder of Tupac Shakur. But the case is impossible to solve. Although the Bloods blame the Crips for Tupac's death, they don't name any individuals. It's likely they're worried that whoever killed Tupac will come after them next. The Crips, on the other hand, repeatedly deny all involvement. But police do have one piece of evidence. They've watched the CCTV footage from the fight between Tupac Shakur and Orlando Anderson at the MGM Grand Hotel. Officers believe that the fight may have been enough to give Anderson a strong motive for murder. Orlando Anderson is a name Las Vegas police are already familiar with. They know he's involved in gang activity for the Southside Crips, and he's currently one of their prime suspects for an unsolved murder that took place in April 1996. They use this cold case to issue a warrant for his arrest and bring Anderson into custody on the night of October 2nd, 1996. Then, they question him about the murder of Tupac Shakur. However, Anderson's loyalty to the Crips is strong, and he doesn't flinch under police interrogation. He swears that he had nothing to do with the shooting of Tupac. Although police have their suspicions about him, without a confession or any proof that directly places him at the scene of the crime, their case is weak. Some officers even believe that the CCTV footage is evidence of Anderson's innocence. They don't see how he would have had time to travel from the fight to the murder scene with his injuries. Anderson is released from custody shortly after questioning and never approached by police again. It seems as though the charges for the murder that occurred in April have also been dropped. It's now March 1997. Six months have passed since the drive-by shooting of Tupac Shakur, and his murder remains unsolved. Widespread interest in the case has led to several conspiracy theories. The first, and perhaps most popular, is the suggestion that Tupac's nemesis, Biggie, arranged the attack. Their ongoing bitter feud makes this idea somewhat believable. And of course, there are already suspicions that Biggie tried to kill Tupac once before, at the New York recording studio in 1995. But so far, 
These are just speculations with no supporting evidence, so police are unable to interview him as an official suspect. But Biggie doesn't stay quiet on the matter. In various interviews, he openly discusses his relationship with Tupac and confesses that despite their rivalry, the two artists still cared for each other. When directly asked on a radio show if he planned the murder, Biggie fiercely denies the accusation and admits he wasn't that powerful yet. The next theory to gain popularity speculates that it was Suge Knight who masterminded the death of Tupac. In the weeks before he died, there had been reports of a falling out between the two. The Death Row Records CEO was allegedly underpaying Tupac, and there were rumors that the rapper was planning to leave the label. Is it possible that the CEO of Death Row Records organized the murder of Tupac Shakur? A final and possibly less convincing story circulates that Tupac staged his own death. Some insist that the 25-year-old was struggling with fame and became overwhelmed by the amount of attention he was constantly receiving. And so he allegedly faked the shooting and retreated into a quiet life away from the public eye. Police struggle to find much evidence to support any of the theories, and their investigation begins to falter. They have no proof that places Anderson at the scene of the crime, and Suge Knight refuses to say who, if anyone, he saw in the white Cadillac. As for Anderson and Biggie, two of the most prominent suspects, we will never know whether they were telling the truth about their innocence. Biggie is murdered in a drive-by attack in Los Angeles on March 9th, 1997, and Anderson is killed by gang violence just one year later. As for Suge Knight, his life rapidly falls apart after the death of Tupac. Death Row Records is deserted by its prestigious artists and begins to crumble, and Suge himself gets caught up in crime He's questioned as the prime suspect in Biggie's murder and ends up in jail for an unrelated crime in 2015. However, despite the death of two suspects and the incarceration of another, interest in the murder of Tupac Shakur does not dwindle. In the years that pass, more theories will speculate on what happened to the rapper until a member of the Southside Crips, Keith D, comes forward with an interesting story to tell. It's 2009, and Detective Greg Kading from the LAPD is visiting former rapper, drug dealer, and Crips gang member Keith D in a Los Angeles jail. The 50-year-old man is currently serving a minimum of 25 years for extensive drug dealing charges. But today, Detective Kading hopes to strike a plea deal with Keith D. He's offering freedom in exchange for testimony about the murder of Tupac Shakur. Detective Kading has long suspected Keith D of involvement in the crime. After all, it was Keith D's nephew, Orlando Anderson, who was attacked by Tupac on the night of the drive-by. And records show that the drug dealer was staying in Vegas when the murder happened. If there's anyone who knows about the events from that night, surely it's Keith D. And so when Detective Kading meets with him, he discreetly pulls out a tape recorder and begins recording their conversation. Unaware that he's being taped, Keith D dives straight into the story of Tupac's murder, 
and reveals details that have never before been heard. He explains that, on September 7, 1996, numerous members of the Southside Crips piled into cars with their guns loaded, ready to kill Tupac. They were acting under the orders of a Harlem drug dealer who had strong links to the Crips. His name was Eric Martin, but he was also known as Von Zip. Keith D claims that Zip wanted Tupac dead, although he doesn't explain why. Viewing revenge for Anderson's attack as the perfect reason to strike, Zip allegedly offered to pay the gang $1 million for the crime. The Crips drove across town and headed for the 662 Club. They'd heard that Tupac was performing there later that night, so decided to wait in the parking lot for his arrival. However, 15 minutes passed by with no sign of Tupac. The Crips grew restless. Many started to get cold feet and wanted to go home. They were nervous about carrying out an attack on the famous Tupac Shakur, and one by one, they left the club. Eventually, only four Crips remained. Keith D., Terrence Brown, DeAndre Smith, and Orlando Anderson. The men piled into their white Cadillac and headed to a liquor store. Terrence Brown jumped into the driver's seat, Keith D. sat next to him in the front passenger seat, and DeAndre Smith and Anderson filled up the back. As they were driving away from the store, they spotted Tupac. He was traveling in a flashy BMW, sitting next to Suge Knight, and all around him on the sidewalks, girls were screaming his name. The Crips and the Cadillac quickly swung round in a U-turn and sped after the BMW. They watched it stop at a new set of red traffic lights. It was positioned in the middle lane, and the Cadillac slowed down right next to it. Suge, Tupac, and the Crips were just meters apart. Keith D had the loaded weapon ready, but the BMW was on the wrong side for him, so he handed the gun to the men in the back. DeAndre Smith was nearest to Tupac and would have had the best chance at hitting their target. But for some reason, he refused to pull the trigger. He tried to hand it back to Keith D, continually shouting, No, no, no. According to Keith D, it was at this moment that his nephew, Anderson, sitting in the rear passenger seat, lunged forward and grabbed the gun. He didn't want to waste any more time. Anderson leaned across DeAndre Smith and aimed the gun at Tupac. He then ruthlessly blasted bullets straight into the BMW. If the taped words of Keith D are to be believed, then it was his own nephew, Orlando Anderson, who killed Tupac Shakur. The vengeful attack was overseen by Von Zip, although Keith D doesn't explain his reasons for ordering the murder. Neither Suge nor Biggie were involved. However, there is the possibility that Keith D's confession isn't entirely truthful. He may have placed all the blame on Anderson because he's been dead for the past 11 years. There's no way Anderson can refute Keith D's accusations. The LAPD accept Keith D's story as a plea bargain and he's released from jail. Although his words suggest he was an accessory to the murder, his agreement with Kading ensures they won't use any self-incriminating information against him. But the conversation with Detective Kading will not be the last time he speaks about Tupac Shakur. 
almost 10 years after incriminating his deceased nephew, Keith D. will backtrack on his original testimony. It's now 2018, and Keith D. is speaking to filmmakers for a documentary series, Death Row Chronicles. Aged 58 and dying of cancer, he admits he has nothing left to lose. He claims that all he cares about is the truth. In the documentary, Keith D. tells a similar story to that which he told Detective Kading nine years ago. However, there's one key difference in his retelling. When asked directly by the interviewer who killed Tupac Shakur, Keith D. gives a surprising answer. He flashes the briefest of smiles and lets out a slight but knowing laugh, as though he's been caught doing something he shouldn't. He then replies, Gonna keep it for the code of the streets. It just came from the back seat, bro. It's strange that Keith D. doesn't say Anderson was the murderer this time. He had no problem incriminating his nephew when talking to Kading in 2009. So why the sudden change now? Perhaps he regrets breaking the street code. Within gangs, there's normally an impenetrable loyalty between members. And snitching or pointing the finger is met with deep disapproval. Now that he's nearing the end of his life, does Keith D feel guilty about betraying his trust and ratting out his deceased nephew? Or maybe he knows that his testimony can be used to incriminate him this time. When Keith D spoke to Kading nine years ago, he was involved in a deal which made sure his own words couldn't be used against him. But now, speaking freely to filmmakers, there's a very realistic chance that his words will land him in prison. If he admits that he handed the gun to the man who shot Tupac, then Keith D could be charged as an accessory to murder. When Keith D retold the story of Tupac's murder in 2018, he believed he was dying and that those words would be the last he ever spoke about the case. He was wrong. Keith D's presumed deathbed confession was preemptive and the former rapper and drug dealer is still alive today. But his words might have cost him his remaining days of freedom. In April 2022, former head of security at Death Row Records, Reggie Wright, gave an interview about the Tupac Shakur case. He implied there's a possibility that Keith D will get arrested in the upcoming months and charged with the murder of Tupac. But no arrest has been made yet, and Keith D has dismissed the rumors. When talking on the YouTube channel, The Art of Dialogue, Keith D claimed to know nothing about an upcoming arrest or murder charge. That dude obsessed with me, he exclaimed through gritted teeth and warned that Wright needs to leave him alone. Although it remains unproven, many people accept the theory that Orlando Anderson was Tupac's assassin. The attack in the hotel gave him the motive and proved he was in Las Vegas at the time. And of course, Keefe's first confession incriminated him. But with Anderson dead, two witnesses from the Cadillac also deceased, and Keefe D now backtracking on his previous testimony, we can never be entirely sure. And so, over two decades since the fatal drive-by shooting, hip-hop's tragic mystery remains 
unsolved. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Emma Stillwell, a dying woman with a murderous past. In December 1882, Emma Stillwell is on her deathbed suffering from tuberculosis, but she has a confession to make. The 30-year-old woman is a serial killer. When she was just 24 years old, she committed her first brutal murder with the help of her mother and brother. Following this, the killing spree commenced. Emma took the lives of an innocent traveler, a newborn baby, and made several attempts to kill her second husband. But although she was put on trial for murder, Emma was never charged for her crimes. Now, as she takes her dying breaths, will she finally reveal why she murdered and how she escaped justice for six long years? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. listeners, I'm Sarah Turney, host of Disappearances. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify.